Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast. On today's episode, dun, 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 we have a guest who is not only a Guinness World Record holder, but he holds 10 Guinness World Records. He has summited 14 of the top 8,000 meter plus mountains in the world in seven months. The previous record was done in eight years. Just to give you an idea of who we're talking about here. I'll, I'll read out some of the stuff here, because this guy is genuinely, I've followed him for ages. He's born in Nepal. He was a world record-breaking mountaineer. Uh, he's got a 16-year military career. He spent six years as a Gurkha, 10 years with the Special Forces in the UK, the SBS, Special Boat Services, which is kind of like the pinnacle. Um, and... Since he left the military, he's become this completely obsessed and incredible mountaineer. There's a list of record-breaking summits, many high-altitude and high-risk rescue missions. He's got an MBE for these achievements. Last year, he smashed the record for summiting all 14 of the highest death zone peaks in the world in just six months and six days. The previous record, as I said earlier, was just shy of eight years. He really is a mega, mega record holder. His latest challenge was seeing him attempt to, to summit K2, the second highest mountain in the world uh, in the winter. That's the big thing about this. A feat has never been accomplished by anyone ever. And although the summit of Everest at a high altitude, K2 is more difficult and more dangerous to climb, due in part to its more serious and dangerous weather. He wrote a book recently called Beyond Possible. It's really something you should all go and read. One Soldier, 14 Peaks, My Life in the Death Zone. And if you follow him on Instagram, you'll be able to see some of the stuff that he puts himself through. He's just an incredible human being. And guys, I really, really, really want you to listen to this guy because he inspires the living pants out of me. Please, please, please welcome and enjoy, okay, on today's podcast, Nimsdai Perja. M-B-E. Well, Nims, to have you on the show is an absolute honour. Genuinely is an honour. I've been following your stuff for some time now. Um, I avidly look at everything you post on Instagram. And for my listeners, they'll know that I'm uh, a bit obsessed with mountaineering, mountains and stuff like that. I've had time, uh, or spent time with Sir Chris Boninton and Sir Ranulph Fiennes and people like that. I've shared their stories. and But that was a much different time. You know, that was a, a generation ago when there was different types of equipment that was available, things hadn't moved on as much as they have now but I've always been fascinated with why people climb but before we get to that maybe you can just give us a bit of your backstory you're, you're obviously you're from Nepal but tell us about what childhood was like but also tell us about joining the Gurkhas and how cool that was and then getting into the SBS. Now also Mike great to be here and yeah growing up in Nepal was um, pretty tough for me uh, because you know I grew up you know and I was brought up in a very humble, you know, and and, and really poor family, I would say. Um, and uh, and then, and just to give an, a raw example for this listener, and I didn't even used to have a flip flops, you know, when I was a kid, and all, uh, and then, and 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 not good food and all that. But um, uh, as my brothers got into the Gurkhas, uh, and I just wanted to be a Gurkha as well, and that kind of you know, boost a bit of you know, morale in the family, and, uh, and also I decided to join the Gurkhas. Uh, but coming into the questions, you know, the, the climbing the mountains and all, even though I'm from Nepal, 
I never had thought that I would climb any mountains, you know, at that stage, you know, as a kid, I just wanted to be a Gurkha and all that. And, um, and also because, you know, I also grew up in the most flat and warmest part of the country in Nepal, in the Chitwan. So it's, it's so hot. Um, so yeah, growing up was completely different to who I am today, I, I must say. When you, when you go back to those times and you see where you came from and what you've achieved right uh, by now, and I'm sure you mean, you're only young anyway, I'm sure there's more ahead for you anyway. But when you, when you look back at that time and you consider where you came from, uh, a lot of people won't have been to Nepal and, and underst- understand exactly what you mean. I have, so I have the great pr- pleasure of being there. But that, that abject poverty and that underprivileged upbringing, was there a part of you when you were growing up that had some person, some, some person you'd never met or someone that was exposed to you that inspired you to go on and try and become something more than just what society had laid out for you? Um, I think being brutally honest, um, I must say, and I, unfortunately, I didn't have really, you know, like those kind of, you know, person or something who, you know, I had the chance to look up to. Um, but I had something in me, like, you know, for example, as a kid, I wanted to join the Gurkhas and, you know, I was in this, you know, boarding school, you know, as when my brothers got into the Gurkhas, they sent me uh, to obviously, you know, to a good school for better education. And we're not allowed to obviously get out of this compound and everything, but I used to wake up at like sometimes one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning and used to run like 20 kilometers, 25 kilometers. And and I used to be back in the bed pretending that I must sleep at six o'clock, something like that. Um, but the stories over there was, you know, there was something I always wanted to be. And I think if there's an aim that I want to be, and I always have been working hard and, and a lot of people now say, oh, you know, you are successful and all this. And then, and I keep saying that when every Gurkha, you know, family, when every military, you know, friends were, you know, like sleeping. I used, I used to be the one to wake up at that, you know, from the bed at two o'clock in the morning, carrying, you know, 80 pounds and running like, you know, 20 kilometers. And then starting the full military day exactly the same in the rest of the colleagues. Then in the evening, I used to run back again, clean fatigue, back to home, have a quick food. Then I used to go to the gym and I used to cycle 65 miles. Then I used to go to the swimming pool you know, in the same gym and I used to do a freestyle. I'm not a, I, I wasn't a really good, great swimmer, but I used to do 100 lengths in 25 meter pool. And then the point here is not what I did. The point here is all of my friends who were there, none of them were bothered to that, do that. You know, I never say it's raining. I never say it's snowing today. I never say, you know, today I'm tired. You know, I work so hard for this. There's got to be some reason in there. Were you highly competitive with your brothers no i wasn't i was um you know like for me i wasn't competitive with my brothers but i think in it that it stays i was i was a very competitive person and i had to be the best i had to be the number one so for from like joining the gaikas again you know i had to be number one so i used to train extra harder than anybody else to to get that you know position um, but then my story changes as, as, as the things develop and as I get more experience and, and obviously in development of you know, the who I am today. So at that stage, I used to be very competitive in, in person to person and who I want to be. But then once I started, you know, once I passed the selection for special forces, then when I first did my, you know, 
first six, six, uh, you know, thousand meter peak, first climbing peak, I learned that, you know, com competing with, you know, person or object, you know, is not any, any advantages, you know, I, I, for me anyway. And what I started learning from that point is, you know, I, I figured out key things, you know, I, I figured out, you know, wherever you go, you always find someone, you know, stronger and, and better than you. And also giving you one example, you know, when I was in the Gaikas, I was told, you know, Gaikas are the fittest person in the planet and they are like, you know, so good. And I wasn't exposed to this outside world. So from the Gaikas, I was, I was a number one runner. So I came outside of the Gaikas and I, I started running with the whole army. Then, you know, we had a few like, you know, counterparts, obviously within the British military from like Kenya and then from British. And I started doing my first like, you know, like competition outside my own bubble. And I realized, oh my God. And because my instructor was saying that, you know, we are the fittest and all, I tried to keep up with them. But naturally their body were built for that. So they were so fast, but I still keep them. And then, and yeah, I realized, you know, there are people like better than you. Then I started <coughs> looking into backgrounds like, why, you know, Nepal haven't won the World Cup in like hundred meters and, you know, like full marathon. Because I don't think we're built for that. I know nothing is impossible, but then, Rather than chasing that kind of a goal, I, I decided to find something in me that I'm stronger at, at something. And I started looking, okay, as long as every day I'm improving and, and I'm being better than who I was yesterday, that's my goal. Rather than, you know, like trying to be better than somebody else on my left, it's something else that he's good and all that. So, yeah, that's where, you know, my, my, my thinking, my thought process and, and everything started changing. There's, there's a big cliche in what you just said then, because, you know, always wanting to try and improve yourself a bit. And, and that, that, that's spoken about a lot. You know, if you improve yourself by 10% a month for 10 months, then you've improved yourself by 100% over 10 months. And so that kind of stuff's talked about a lot. But rarely, rarely do people actually do that. Rarely do people really focus on that. I mean, the only person that that I can think of that I've, I've had any opportunity to get to know is David Coggins. But he can do you know who David Coggins is? Yeah, so, so I know. Yeah, and, and so, but he had something to prove. Like there was, because of what happened in his upbringing with his father, he had something to prove. He really needed to prove something to somebody. You're saying to me that you didn't have to prove anything to anyone in your mind. You just wanted to be better yourself, which surely everybody should have that mindset anyway. But was it, was it, was there motivation around you from the people that you worked for when you were in the Gurkhas that, that was led by maybe the carrot or the stick? Which, which kind of worked for you better? Well, I think, May, you know, you, you are absolutely right. And then, you know, coming from the Special Forces background and, and who I am, May, I have done things that probably people can't even imagine. I have done things that people couldn't even dream of. So I had nothing to prove, buddy, you know. And I know for myself, you know, I have what I have done and then who I am and then things that I have done in the mission and all. So I absolutely believe that and I, I don't need to prove anything to the world because I know myself, but, you know, moving into the, the whole project and as, as in, in, even in my life, moving in, in further from that was rather than being so super competitive and then getting lost um, in, in, the, in the process, for example, okay, you are with with few in a group of colleagues you know somewhere else in, in your environment okay and each of them are stronger at, at something 
right? Everybody, human has got every like different talent. And if you try to beat them in every talent, you're going to get lost in the process because that's not you, right? Because that's their talent. That's what they're good at. And then, and then you try to compete them and, and maybe you're going to lose the process of who you want to be. So that's when I realized, you know, I, for me, was like, okay, I'm going to discover what I'm good at and I'm going to invest in myself to be the best in that one, you know, like one in the world in, in a billion population. And of course, and this is where, you know, I talk about, you know, recognizing your, your like natural talent. Yes, you have the natural talent, but you have to probably work again 20 times harder than, than anybody else. You still have to commit. You still have to work like, like crazily. And then if you put everything in that, then you can be one in, in that 8 billion population. For me, it's like, it's all about, you know, finding yourself, not like, you know, finding what others are good at and trying to be somebody else. It's, for me, it's about like, try to be the best version of yourself. Do you think that, you, you know, you're in elite forces in the Gurkhas, you then, you, you join the SBS, so you're in elite forces then. Do you think being surrounded by a group, a team like that, that are all essentially high achievers in their own way. Mm -hmm. Do you think that keeps you really humble? Oh, 100%, buddy. You got to, because, you know, wherever you go, you always find, you know, someone, you know, better and stronger at something than you. And I've worked with, you know, some of my colleagues, you know, who I, I, I highly respect because the way that, you know, Mr. X can react to, you know, the job X, Y, Z could be different to Mr. You know, Z that, that reacts. So everybody is different. And, uh, and then what I've realized is, you know, the human beings are so amazing and there's no place to be, to be so arrogant. You know, of course, you know, where I come from, you know, I can be like as humble and as, as ground, as, as down to earth, I can say. But then if somebody comes with an attitude, I'm like, you know, come on, man, you know, what have you done? You know, also, you know, and then I think personally what I treat is like, you know, I treat the people how you want to be, be, be treated, right? And if somebody comes with that and, and attitude, and I, I don't have a place, but if somebody is really nice and all, I, I do that, I probably go even down like by 20 times because that's who I am, you know? And yeah, why, why you need to have so much like, you know, ego and all that, you know? And, 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 and I'm sorry, you know, we all have ego. We all have, without ego, you cannot be like the person that I am. You cannot be the person with like David Goggins or anybody, Muhammad Ali and everybody else, but it's all about how you manage them. And it's about dealing, yeah. dealing with the right attitude, with the, with with the right you know in a person. So when 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 you when you compare being a Gurkha and being in the special forces, obviously a Gurkha, you're with people that are probably of a similar build to you, from a similar background yeah. to yeah. you, and then you go and join the the special forces in the UK, and uh, well, we're probably a bit taller, probably a bit whiter. Probably, um, I'm gonna say this, and I probably should. I would say that probably Nepalese people are a little bit more humble than British people, and would that be a fair assessment? So I'm just trying to get in my mind what it was like when you went and joined these group of guys, and you're like, you're like, you're essentially part of the Gurkhas, so you're 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 with your own, and then you join the special forces, and almost a little bit of an outsider to begin with. Is that what you felt? Hundred percent, yeah. You have and to how, work, you know, twice harder. You got to prove, you know, twice more and everything. But it's okay, you know. 
if you really wanted to be part of that group, you know, you know, you do things. For example, when I went for the selection for the for the special forces SBS, you know, loads of you know officers, my friends, you know, you know, some of the instructors that I look up to, they were saying, Nims, it's impossible because none of the guy has ever ever done this. You know, no one is, and I was like, no, but it can be done. People have done it. So, but the bottom line for me was the desire to be part of that group and, I, and I, I honestly put my hands on the table even at that point i used to say if i pass this you know selection and if i just become one of those in you know, a cool dudes i don't want to be paid as long as you know i i passed the i earn my rights i earn my respect i'm happy to do this job for free that must how how much i wanted to be part of that group so it's all about how much you want in in life and when you want that so much you are happy to or you're willing to give everything and, and and that's the key in everything i guess yeah really important to say okay let's talk about let's talk about climbing um i'd probably argue that you're the greatest mountaineer of our generation when you look at other people that have uh, uh, have done they can't even have done similar things to you because you've done so much more but when you look at other people that, that that are professional climbers who who do you look up to or who do you admire um, for me, my admiration doesn't necessarily come from the mountaineering world, brother. You know, it comes from, you know, like Muhammad Ali, you know, Usain Bolt and Bruce Lee. You know, those are the people who I, I look up, up to, you know, um, because, you know, I never grew up in, in, in the mountainous environment. I never like, you know, had any idea until I was 29 years old. So, yeah, those are the people who I look up to. Well, that's really interesting. And... When you say Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali, tell me, tell me, because they're very different characters, but what is it about them that inspires you? Okay, you know, Bruce Lee is, is a man for himself. You know, he, he fight his own corner. He, he was absolutely fair in, in, in what he wanted to do. And, you know, he didn't let people to take advantage of him. He, always, he was always fighting. You know, and, and and the person who he become didn't just came with the, it wasn't given. He worked for it. He worked so hard for it. And 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 and, and the thought process of Bruce Lee is, is is next level. But also, if you compare, if you come back to like you know, you send bold. You know, when I'm like that, you know, it gives me so much energy. Like when I'm a thousand meter peak, I say, yes, I'm not the Usain Bolt of in a sea level, but I am the Usain Bolt of in a thousand meter peak. And it gives me energy going into Muhammad Mali, the, the greatness, you know, this, there was, I don't think there was any sportsman like him. And if you look at Muhammad Ali, the, the style that he had, you know, the, of course that there's a training, hard work and dedication that, that, that comes, you know, you know, side by side, but if you, Park that and, and as a personality, as a, as a person, wow. You know, and, and he, even his last fight, you know, he could have easily said that, and you know, I have won so many fights, I have done so many, like, in his stuff, but he wasn't prepared to, he wasn't scared of, you know, like, losing. He was saying, okay, I'm this much old, I'm a lot older, but I'm still, I think I have got it. And he still, he was still prepared to lose. But he was also prepared to win, you know, and then if you look at that documentary and all his, his last fight, of course, you can see he's, he's getting older, you know, he, he doesn't have his stamina, but his brain, the way he thought was, okay, I may lose it, but so what? I'm still going to go as Muhammad Ali and I'm going to perform. And, and then the willingness to lose, and he had that confidence that he's still the greatest, is, 
is phenomenal. Like some of the fighters, they probably fight, let's say, 40 fights and they don't want to go in and do another fight because in case if they lose it. But then he didn't have that kind of, you know, like, um, uh, I would say, fear. He had believed that he was the, he was the greatest of all and, and he was prepared to, to go in, in the ring even to lose. So I think, you know, there are so many angles in this one, and but all these characters, it comes again about self-belief, you know, it's, it all comes you know, down into, into the positive mindset. It all comes down into believing yourself, you know. And then for me, my message to the rest of the world is, you know, who is Nimstai? Okay, Nimstai is born in this village without flip-flops. He didn't have this opportunity. Then he joined the Gurkhas. From the Gurkhas, to the special forces, becoming the first ever Gurkha in 200 years of history, then to you know climbing all these 14 peaks, and who I am today, you know, is something as an example for rest of the world that you don't need rich parents, you don't need to have all the you know like facilities, everything doesn't have to be given. You can create your own opportunity. You have to of course work hard more than anybody else, but you can still you know achieve success. And, and that's a very clear message, I think, from, from, from my perspective. Yeah, very, very clear message. Let's talk about fear. You've obviously climbed in incredible summits. You've done some amazing things. What was the first 8,000-meter summit you ever did? Um, my first 8,000 was Dalagri. So it's the world's seventh highest mountain. Uh, it's in my village um, and uh, where I was born. But I had obviously never like you know thought of climbing, and yeah, I climbed that in 14 days, and that's when I realized, okay, I'm 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 quite fast. I'm super kind of you know like have this ability to climatize and all that. So that's when I realized it, and and the summit was it was amazing. You know, I was trying to see if I can see as far as I can, and it was like you know beautiful. But of course, inside I was a bit nervous because you know you hear this story and rumors were like okay if you're in the summit you have to go down you know because people die here so you know that was kind of you know like things you know kicking up at the back burner how long ago was that that was in 2014 six years ago yeah shit the bed i didn't know that wow okay so so and how long had you been climbing before you did that uh, I started my first, I would say, you know, like climbing in December 2012. So you've been just at it for a couple of years. You then go and do your first 8,000 meter summit. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize it was that recent. Okay. Can I ask, how old are you now? I am, you know, 37. 37. So I started climbing when I was, you know, roughly 30 year old. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so how long did it then take you between doing that first summit and doing the next summit? How much time did it take you between getting that? So I did first 1,000 in 2014, and I did Everest in 2016. But also, man, you can imagine, you know, I was still in the Special Forces. You know, it's, we call it as, um, you know, as, as a washing machine cycle. There's no, you know, like free time. You know, you are so busy with, with, with the time I served in, in the Special Forces. There was war kicking off everywhere around the world. And I used to go and climb, you know, during my, you know, holiday between the, the, the operational, you know, tour and all that. So I was fully like in a part-time, in a hobby climber until 2018. Wow. And then what made you want to go and pursue this goal of the 14 summits in that short period of time? Where did the idea come from? 
So in 2017, I was one of the instructors for the Gaikas, um, and I was involved in setting up the fixed lines, which met the you know the successful summit of of the Gaikas, um, reaching you know 13 you know members to the summit, and also like opening the lines for everybody on on the Everest with my team and and the Sherpas. But immediately after that, what I did was I then climbed Everest, then I climbed Lhotse, then I climbed Makalu in in five days, and that's including parting for two nights in between. And that's when I knew that I could have probably done that in three days. And, and that's when I kind of you know, discovered that I had so much to give into this, you know, mountaineering world. And, and that's when, it, you know, I started thinking bigger. Because before, you know, climbing 14 peaks in this, in this short time was out of my imagination as well. You know, I, could, I couldn't even imagine that. So when this happened, then I was, uh, I was the head of an extreme cold weather warfare in, in SBS. So the lead for you know all those and stuff. So, and I was a chief. So I said to the unit, "Can I go and climb in a top five highest mountain in eighty days? Because for me, it makes sense to go and and develop you know my skills so I can pass it to the to the you know like the younger member in the in in the organization." But then the risk was so high when it's like TA two and all this involved, and and the work the defense said that NIMS is, is super high risk, so they said they, you know, they, they can't allow me to do that. And after that, I was like, okay, I started thinking for the bigger reason. And I was like, okay, yeah. And um, I, I decided to put my notice in. I decided to leave, you know, my job, my security. I decided to give up my, my pension and, um, and, you know, take this challenge, which at that point was still, you know, unimaginable, um, which was to climb all the 14, 8,000 meter peak in just seven months. That was the mission statement. Is there anything else left to achieve apart from what we're going to do? We'll discuss K2 in a second, but is there anything else left to achieve after doing that? Because that's such a massive undertaking. Of course, brother. And, and I keep saying to the people, I'm just, you know, like baby in this, you know, in this, in this field for me anyway, you know, as a person, because I only became a professional climber, you know, now like 13 months, I'm just starting this. So there's always bigger things coming up there. So, you know, stay tuned. Anyone who knows uh, about or follows anybody that climbs mountains knows that K2, although not the biggest summit, is the most dangerous one. Um, it's spoken about with great frequency. And not only is it very dangerous, it's not to be done, attempted or even thought about in winter. So what made you think that? <laughs> Well, I love, you know, I'm one of those persons who love challenge and everything. And I think it's, it's, it's the only 1,000 meter peak that is still remains on climb. And of course, you know, I wanted to go and, and do this, not only for the Nepalese climbing community, but equally for the Gurkhas. Um, and again, you know, so those are the, are the lines that I'm, I'm looking into it. You know, it's, it's, you know, and hopefully through this project, you know, last year I have been raising the awareness about you know, climate change, but through this project, I just wanted to, you know, talk more about, you know, what we can do right now, as in like act now in order to, you know, make a huge difference in, in, in climate change, global warming, and, and how we can have a, a run a sustainable environment. So those are the three, you know, primary objectives for, for this mission. Has... I want to talk to you about the, the climate change as well in a second, but has raising money to attempt all of these expeditions and complete them and the ones coming up as well, has that always presented a, a big challenge or have you found it easy to get support? 
Um, look, you know, when I was doing, you know, all the 14 picks mission within that seven months, it was really tough to get the funding because one, people were saying, okay, if you want to do this mission, like, who are you first? Because, you know, at that point I had no Instagram, I had no Facebook. This is 2018. Even though I had like three world records, but they all were under the cover because, you know, I was still part of, you know, special forces. So that's why when people say, oh, you're doing it for name and fame, I'm like, come on, man, talk of it, you know, something bigger because you don't know me. I was still in special forces. I had those three world records of over a thousand meter feet. I didn't need to prove anything to, to anymore. But then the whole project with, with um, you know, last year's was to show the world that, you know, what is humanly possible, you know, to show the world that, you know, like, yes, I had no funding. Yes, you know, I, you know, the, you know, no one can imagine that I can climb all these peaks and there were so many problems, but still, you know, I managed to pull it off. So, and, and those were the messages. That's why you know, I, was, uh, I was able to, you know, do a, a greater sacrifice and I wanted to do the justice to the Naples climbing, you know, community. And, and, and they were very, you know, bigger to me than, than who I am, than my family and everything. So I was, I was happy to give everything for this project. It was tough, but now moving in, into, you know, the skater winter, I'm so glad that, you know, the Red Bull is partnering with me now. We've got Osprey Europe, you know, the, the backpacks, you know, they're supporting me. The Scarpa, you know, the one, you know, they make the best you know, thousand meter boots. They are like partnering with me as well. So I'm super humbled to be, to be representing, you know, this awesome brand. And also what it, this shows to the, to the, you know, people from, you know, underdeveloped country is that, when they look at my face, like, wow, you know, I can be Nimes Thai. So they could be like, you know, they can dream to be Red Bull, you know, sponsor athlete as well in the future. And, 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 and I think this is all about, you know, who I am, inspiring our younger generation to, to be able to see their, you know, dream and, and to be able to achieve their new possible. That's really awesome. I'm glad that Red Bull are behind you. Talk to me about, I, I interviewed a guy called Ron Garan and Ron, you might, you probably don't know him, but Ron was one of the pilots on the space shuttle and he lived on the space station for six months and he's done four spacewalks. And so he's a, a very accomplished astronaut. And he talks about, <clears throat> he talks about being in space and looking down at the earth. Um, and he just sat there one day looking out of the window of the space station, looking at our planet and he couldn't believe what we were doing to damage it. He couldn't get his head around why we would destroy something so beautiful. And it's in, inspired him to go and, and, and make change and, 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 and make, give his effort to trying to deal with some of the problems that our planet creates. And climate change is one of them. How did you get, how did you get connected with that yourself? And what kind of impact has it had on you? For me, like, and I absolutely believe that, you know, our, our planet Earth is our home. You know, what I'm now in this building, is, it's not a home, you know? And I just give like, you know, you know, a simple example to the people. You know, this, you know, artificial structure doesn't give you happiness. You know, sometimes, or if you are in that bubble, you, you, you must be in, in wrong. For example, if somebody is stressed, if somebody is like worried, for example, if you just go for a walking, what, and that's provided by the nature, our, our home, and then, your mind gets fresh and everything. And if you want to take into extreme stuff, you go rafting. You are so happy. You forget everything. And I think that's where our home is. That's, I'm, I'm talking really basic over there. But I also believe that it is not in our rights to destroy this planet and, and have nothing for our you know, future generations. You know, 
I, I absolutely believe in that. And now moving into your another question, you know, what what are the changes I have seen? You know, I've seen loads of changes, specifically in, in, in the Himalayas and, and the big mountains. The current one I just recently came was from like, you know, Himza Glacier. It used to be glacier before, but now there's a lake. You know, all the glaciers are melting. And the impact of that is huge. You know, there are so many people who live, you know, under the shadow of these big mountains, relying on this, you know, fresh water resources. And if there's no water eventually, you know, like it's a disaster. It's not only the life is affecting to the people who lives over there, but also like the plants, the vegetation, the animals, every every life gonna get get affected. So it's very scary to see that. And you know, I think if we don't act now, as in this decade, I think we may be a bit late to save you know the, the whole of the human race because you know nature has always bigger thing to say. Yeah. So yeah so through everything what i do now i'm just trying to raise the awareness and i'm just saying like look if every people eight billion population whatever they do if you know if they put you know the, the earth our home in in the core of their heart when when whenever they make decisions whenever they are building anything else the factory whatever it is i think we can easily make this you know like we can easily solve this problem that's what i believe i think that for the people that don't look at climate change as a problem and kind of brush it under the carpet, th those people, and, and I've been up in the Himalayas, I've been up to base camp and I've been to the Cotopaxi and Tilly and Elbrus and Tubgau and all that kind of stuff. And, and what you explained just then is exactly the feeling I have. When I'm up in the mountains, I'm acutely aware of my surroundings and I'm aware of nothing else. And I'm really, I find myself at, 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 in a state of peace that I don't have anywhere else in my life. And that state of peace I have brings so much joy to me whilst I'm there. So whilst I've never done anything as, 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 as serious as you, I, I, I feel it when I'm up there and I, and I find myself connected to the people. I find myself connected to the landscape and, 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 and the air and breathing and aware of breathing and stuff like that. And I think that if everybody went and spent two weeks climbing in the Himalayas, okay, everybody that's disconnected to any form of, I think they would change. I think their mindset would shift and I think they would start to see. But so many of people can't see past their concrete walls or their PC and stuff and they can't feel it. And, you know, when people say to me, you know, if you could do anything, what would you do? If you could spend your time doing anything, what would you do? And I'd be like, you have to go to the Himalayas and you have to go and hike. And in fact, you don't know to go to the Himalayas. Go to Kili, go to Cotopaxi, go to Chimborazo, get connected, get really connected again. And you don't have to go there with a conscious mind of, I'm going to get connected. It will do it to you. It has the ability, the magic up there brings it to you anyway. You are absolutely right. And then just to highlight what you said over there, you know, my first like, you know, in a climb on, on I, in the Lobita East, it was, you know, I never had wear crampons in my life, eventually managed to get to the summit, you know, you know, and all that. And for me, you know, when you come from a special forces background, when you come from the Gaia becoming the first special forces, everything that you have done, you think you are invincible. Then the mountain put things into, into perspective for me, like, you know, wow, you know, we are no one. Also equally from the other dynamics, you know, we worry about so many things in life. And when you are over there, as you said, man, it's, it's so peaceful. It's just you and the nature and, and you are living in the moment. 
And when you live in the moment, what you do is you live your life, you know, multiply by how many times because you live at that moment. So for anyone who's listening to this podcast and if you haven't you know, experienced those kind of an adventure, you know, please, please, it's, it's, it's just a walk. You know, we have been walking since we were born. So don't be scared of that. Don't think it's, oh, it's super hard or it is, you know, just, just get out of, you know, like, you know, yeah, of your place. And, and then I'm sure, you know, that will change your life. So yeah, as it has you know changed mine. It, it, it's interesting how when, when you're in a tea house, how the conversations are different. You have real conversations with real people that all seem to be <clears throat> far more open, far more engaging, far more interested in everybody else than you, you ever will in a Starbucks. In, Absolutely uh, right, mate. I, I, and we're talking to you, I'm, I'm sorry it's doing this to me, but it's, it takes me back to, to, to those moments. And it just, it brings me tuned in again, acutely tuned in to those moments that I have when being there and doing that. We talk about wealth in so many different ways, but the majority yeah. of the planet are measuring it in numbers and money and who's got the latest phone and have you got a Mac or a PC or are you wearing that designer brand? Oh, you're a loser. You're driving a blooming Volkswagen and you could be driving a BMW <laughs> type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and a lot of people, when they first go up into, you know, uh, uh, poorer areas like the Himalayas, even taking a base camp trek, they see that people are poorer, but I question whether anyone's poorer at all up there because the richness yeah. that exists genuinely. And, and for you listening, you, the, all of you listeners right now, understand, you know me, you hear me every week, week in, week, week out. Trust me, there is no more wealth than a family that have nothing but everything. As in they have none, none of what you have, but they ever everything that once you experienced it, you would dream of having. Mate, you absolutely smashed it there, buddy. I absolutely smashed it there. And then that's exactly the feel and the experiments um, you'll get when, when you, when you do that in a, in a kind of an adventure here. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. So you're, you're married. I'm, I'm married. Um, so my, my, my wife, when I, I, I went and did my training to climb Everest, uh, to the summit of Everest, I went to, uh, to Ecuador to do my glacier training. And so there's a company called Madison Mountaineering that I know and a guy called Garrett Madison, who, again, is a big fan of yours, too. And uh, he, he sent me off to Ecuador, said, get your glacier training over there before we do the, the summit. While I was doing the glacier training, a whole bunch of people died on, on Everest. And my wife said to me, if you think you're going to the top of Everest, then you need to go and see your lawyer first so that you can get divorce papers sorted out before you go. <laughs> and and, and, and this, this is not a joke. She was deadly serious. And I'm literally, I, I'm on Cotopaxi. And luckily, Cotopaxi, surround, all of those mountains surround, surround Quito. And because they surround Quito, you've got mobile phone signal, which is uh, one of those things that you don't really want, but you've got it. And so my wife was like, if you think for one minute, how does your wife cope? I think um, she's been very supportive, I, I must say, and uh, we've been, you know, like together since 2008 and I grew up and, and I think she has seen me how I am once I set my objective. For example, when I said I was going for the Special Forces selection, I think she didn't realize how, you know, who I am and, and how hard I work for this. And honestly, the training regime that I was doing at that point, even I'm at this point, I'm, I'm surprised, like, wow, Nimshin, hats off to you. 
and uh, growing from there like she has seen me like how I was I was you know when with the special forces that that will be literally like drinking wine and the phaser comes in and will be like boom I'm away for like three months I don't know so I think she was kind of you know, used to it and she was used to that you know I'm you know I'm a very high risk taker but I, I take a calculated risk and then and the nature of the job you know says it all so I think I'm thankful that she's used to it. You know, she, she always thinks that now I'll come back home alive. Let's take the scales between you climbing mountains and you being shot at with bullets or near landmines. I suppose that in a funny kind of way, maybe mountaineering might be a, the, the, the better of the two evils. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, I think. <laughs> okay, before we finish, just tell us about your book, Beyond Possible. You, put, you brought a book out and... To talking about your journey what what made you write the book did you enjoy the experience of putting that book together and uh, how has it been received yeah um mate, thank you so much and you know i i really wanted to write this book because it was really important for me to stay alive to tell my own story and every time when i was like you know dying i was like nims come on don't be that guy, you know, where someone assume and then they tell you a story because that will never do the justice to the story and, and and that also gave me kind of support at, at, at some point. But I have written this book with 100% brutal honesty. Um, and and I work so hard for this because, you know, everything what I do, I give 100%. But I also wanted this book to be like a, a reference when people look into impossible stuff. You know, people can read about the mindset and what it takes to achieve the impossible. Um, so, and then I, I thoroughly believe that we all have, you know, different talents and stuff. As long as, you know, like you commit to it, if you 100%, you work harder than anybody else. And with a positive mindset, you know, you can achieve your new possible. And then that, that's what the book is, is all about, you know, conquering your own mountains rather than the actual, actual mountains. So, yeah. And then the response I've been getting is really, really overwhelming, buddy. So, yeah, I'm really thankful for, for everybody who, who has been reading this book. And, yeah. Something to be very proud of indeed. Nims Thai, I am so, so grateful that you took the time to talk to us today. Genuinely, I am. And I hope all of the listeners go and get a copy of your book, follow you online, because genuinely, you're, you're one in a million and you're someone that we could all learn something from. Ladies and gentlemen, Nims Thai. Ten Guinness World Records to start with sounds like a massive achievement. If you don't understand that you've never climbed anything before, you've never been in the military, special forces or whatever it may be, take a little bit of time to go and learn about this kind of stuff because NIMS literally is one of the most unusual people in the world considering his achievements, considering where he came from, no money behind him, no wealthy family, no, you know, bullying, no, none of this stuff happened to him. He was a guy that had a drive to just want to keep being better and better all the time. Now, if you're Nepalese, is it something to be really proud of to join the Gurkhas? Yeah, hell yeah, absolutely it is. But most people don't get into the Gurkhas. But then to go on and want to join the Special Forces. And for those of you that don't know, the SBS, Special Boat Service, is probably, I mean, military people will know, so don't give me um, but the, the SBS literally is the pinnacle of the military in the UK. 
but to go and then do that, move into that environment. And as he said on the podcast just now, he's only been climbing for a little while. I couldn't believe it, you know. He's only getting started yet. He's already picked up 10 Guinness World Records and he's summited all of those 8,000-meter peaks in just under seven months. Just, just an incredible achievement. As you can see, his energy is humble. I'm going to try and get him back on the show again. I want to spend more time talking to him. He's my kind of guy. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode and you've got a lot out of it. If you have, do me a favor. Leave comments if you're on uh, SoundCloud or Spotify. Your comments make such a difference to the audience getting to see this. The channels promote it more if there's positive comments. And so please take the time. If you enjoy any of what I do, just to leave it. Just has to be a one-liner, a positive comment. That would be great. And if it's on iTunes that you're listening to this, please go and give it a five-star rating. It's not for you, and it really isn't for me. It's for other people to be able to get notice of this podcast and learn from some of these incredible people that we have as guests on the show. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoyed these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.